righty. Here we go. Are you ready to read? Yeah, let's read the thing. With as few rights as women had in Victorian England in the late 1800s, those who became unmarried mothers faced a very bleak proposition. Turn to prostitution to support themselves and their child, or find a way for the child to quietly and discreetly be adopted away. These so-called immoral women would be unable to obtain gainful employment in workhouses or businesses, with no contraception and no safe way to terminate a pregnancy, as well as rape being a nearly impossible-to-prosecute crime, her options were few to non-existent. There were no adoption agencies, there were no social services. Many women viewed pregnancy akin to a death sentence, whether they had been assaulted or simply put their faith in the wrong man. Economies hate a vacuum, though, and so into this space stepped the practice of baby farming. In practice, it sounds like a proto-adoption agency. A woman would answer an ad in the local newspaper and hand over a sum of ten pounds or so to a kindly-looking woman who would promise to find a good home for the baby. The mother is freed from the impossible societal situation, and the baby farmer ensures a good life for the little tyke. Well, as we all know, whenever there's money to be made, there will be people interested in manipulating the system to give them the maximum return on their investment. And what could be simpler than the callous murder of a newborn for profit? Looked at from a corporate view standpoint, it's pure profit. Looked at from a humanity standpoint, it may be the most vile and horrific crime-for-profit scheme ever. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the practice of baby farming in Victorian England and beyond. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Greg, child safety advocate for the Relative Disasters Group. And I'm his sister, Ella, director of the Historical Babysitting Research Project here at Relative Disasters University. <laughs> I like that. Thanks. Truly does take a village. Uh, okay, from the outset... This episode contains disturbing and upsetting historical facts. We're going to be talking about the methodical and purposeful murder of infants and children. I think for-profit murder Yeah, really takes it to a next level. It, it does, yeah. It, it, this is the for-profit purposeful murder of infants and children. So if that's not something you want to hear, please, please, please check out one of our other m more cheery episodes. This is a thoroughly grim topic, and we won't mind if you skip this one. Okay, that being said, the primary sources for this episode come from the Thames Valley Police Museum, the minutes of evidence taken before the Select Committee on Infant Life Protection Bill, and the University of Oregon's Adoption History Project. Ooh. Yeah. That sounds fun. Uh, yeah, the interesting reading, to say the least. So some background to get us started. Uh, what do you know about the societal stigmas of Victorian England, Ella? Just what I've read in Charles Dickens. Greg. Yeah. It's not a time period I would have thrived in. No. Um, I don't think anybody thrives in that unless you are very well, wealthy and a guy. Queen Victoria did okay. She did fine. That's true. Uh, yeah. Sounds like a pretty grim time to be a parent, mm -hmm. um, to be a human being. Yeah. Uh, especially to be a human being who happened to be a woman. That, that, those are the real bad times. Uh, Not great. A societal stigma could destroy somebody's life through no fault of their own, and no one was at risk more than women. The age of legal consent was 12 years old. Oh. Yep. 
don't like any of this. No. And there was a system in place called coverture. Have you ever heard of coverture? No, but it doesn't sound. It's not great. No, it, it, it was the foundation of most laws that pertain to women. And in an oversimplification, because there are obviously nuances to all of this, but basically... Coverture states that a woman in the care of her father is his legal property, and a married woman was the property of her husband. Anything she owned was given to her husband's control. The Married Women's Property Act of 1870 allowed a married woman to keep her property or any earnings from a job as long as they were acquired after she got married. And Mm -hmm. the Married Women's Property Act of 1882 allowed women to keep the property that they had owned before their marriage. Like a little prenup. Yeah, it, sort of. It was more along the lines of like, if you owned this house and then you got married, the, the guy you married couldn't then kick you out of your own house. Which, okay, that sounds reasonable. Which before then they absolutely could do if they felt like it. Mm. Um, children were the property of their fathers and violence was not recognized as grounds for divorce until 1857. Ooh, that's uh, late. Yeah. Uh, even then, a woman divorcing her husband was probably going to lose all of her money, property, children, and face some brutal societal repercussions. Uh, there was certainly never any chance of getting remarried. There was no, like, you you were going to go work in a gutter. That was your job. Pretty grim. Uh, it wasn't until 1891 that it was ruled that a husband could not imprison his wife for refusing to have sex with him. Oh, okay. Yep. Straight that's up. where we're at. Okay. That's, that was a law. Uh, and it wasn't, here's the one that really surprised me and bothers me a whole lot. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until 1991 that marital rape was recognized as a crime. Okay. So I did know that that that's is way very... too recent. <laughs> <laughs> so Shockingly it, recent thing. It's a little, I mean, yeah, it's, you know, 30 years ago, but at the same time, come on. Like 1891, we're like, you can't lock up your wife if she doesn't, you know, have sex with you tonight. Oh, all right. And then it takes a hundred years. And then it takes a hundred the... years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, fellas, we're not going to let you do this anymore. Okay. So married men were socially and legally allowed to have affairs and mistresses. Well, if a woman did the same, she would be socially outcast and possibly beaten to death by her husband again, pretty much legally. So if you wanted to get a divorce as a woman, yes. you could not sue for divorce on grounds of adultery? You could not sue for divorce on grounds of adultery. The, but the you only... could be sued. Well, the, the interesting there is an interesting sort of legal wrinkle here. Mm-hmm. Women technically couldn't be sued because women technically weren't people. Uh, oh. If you did something, your mm-hmm. husband would be sued for it because he was in charge of your care, you see. Okay. Yeah. Great. You know, fine little legal distinctions like that. The coverture uh, system. It's great. Uh, so if that's the good... Who do you think li- came up with that? I'm going to guess a dude. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to guess it was the League of Women Voters. <laughs> okay. Okay. Moving on. So if that's the good life that married women had, what about unmarried women? See, now that's starting to sound a little better. Nope. <laughs> no. So an unmarried woman had no rights, just like a married woman, Mm -hmm. Uh, but her situation had to revolve entirely around whatever work she could find to keep her alive, okay? Mm -hmm. Industrial work was their best bet, working in a laundry or as a street vendor and working in the coal mines alongside their children, all possibilities. Mm. Uh, If a woman was very fortunate, she might find work as a governess, a nurse, or a midwife. Mm Mm-hmm. 
However, if she lacked the resources to get or continue in any of those jobs, for example, mm-hmm. getting injured working in those coal mines, uh, she would often have to turn to sex work to survive. In mm. fact, sex work became so widespread in Victorian England that it started to be viewed as a military problem because really? so many se- soldiers and officers were coming down with sexually transmitted infections that Parliament passed a series of laws to combat them in the 1860s. Hmm. These are horrifying. They were called the Contagious Diseases Acts, and they allowed the police to stop any woman they wanted and mm-hmm. subject her to a forced physical examination of her genitalia. Mm-hmm. If the woman refused, she would be jailed until she assented. Yikes. So, okay. so it's like stop and frisk, but somehow even worse. Yeah, I would say that is. It's, and, and just think about this. Like, it's all guys on the police. So yeah. you get grabbed by two cops. They are fully allowed to take your clothing off and examine you as much as they feel like, however they feel like. And then, you know, once they feel like you're humiliated enough, you can go home. It's horrifying. So it shouldn't be any surprise that in this time and place where women had no recourse against rapists, no autonomy over their own bodies, and no rights to refuse a man who wanted to have sex with her, lots of unwanted pregnancies occurred. Sure. Now, For unmarried women, this was devastating. It meant that whatever work she managed to obtain would immediately disappear, as her employer could not be seen as employing a quote-unquote fallen woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, With no access to medical abortion, she might be able to see a cutting barber Mm -hmm. uh, to terminate the pregnancy, but her odds of dying in that process were incredibly high. Uh, usually by hemorrhaging, because they just sort of reached up, scooped out what they thought was there, and said, okay, you're fine. Uh, And finally, even if she could survive the loss of her job and wanted to carry the baby to term, the odds of her dying due to medical complications or in childbirth were still very high. Also, as an unmarried woman, if her child died, whether pre-born or birthed, she could face criminal charges and be sentenced to fines, hard labor, or death. Finally, uh... The cherry on top of this awful Sunday is that no one would ever marry her or support her and her child, so the only work she would likely find would be the aforementioned sex work, for which she could be arrested or molested by the police at their whim. So... So, is this a class thing? You would think it would be, uh, but no, this actually affected upper-class women as well. They just had Mm -hmm. more options. An upper-class woman could go on holiday for you know, a little bit shy of a year. And when she came back, oh, look at this lovely child I've adopted. Mm-hmm. Or she could go on holiday when she started to show. And, oh, you've lost so much weight on your vacation. Those mm-hmm. sort of things. Uh, the babies would disappear, and that was kind of what was done. So, into this incredibly dark time comes a hero. A hero called baby farming. Yay. Yay. A desperate, soon-to-be mother would see an advertisement in their local newspaper such as the following, quote, Married couple with no family would adopt healthy child, nice country home. Terms, 10 pounds. End quote. Okay, so they're paying for infants? They're paying somebody to take away their infant. Okay, so... They're not purchasing the infant from the mother. The mother is coming up with those 10 pounds so that these people will take the infant from her. That makes it worse a little scary yeah oh absolutely so these women would be paying for like care that's the idea that's right get them or were they paying to have them adopted 
So what it was was the you would you would answer these advertisements mm-hmm. and you would hand your baby and the ten pounds to the baby farmer, mm-hmm. and that was supposed to cover their costs of living while the baby farmer found a nice family to adopt your child out to. Okay. That's that was the system, as it was presented to the mothers. Okay. Okay. And keep in mind, ten pounds is actually a huge sum. It is about twelve hundred pounds in today's money. So mm-hmm. we're talking fourteen hundred American dollars. Okay. Yikes. So a woman working in sex work on the street, like that's a really hard sum to come up with. A woman working in a coal mine, making maybe eleven pence a day, that's mm-hmm. really hard to come up with. But they would do it. And their child would be cared for by a loving family in a country home, and the mother would not have her life destroyed by stigma and could go back to the comfortable, crushing poverty of before. Hmm. It was a desperate, impossible decision for a horrifying time, is what I'm trying to get down to. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Made even worse by the fact that, then, the baby farmer would take the money, kill the child, and move on to another town and make more cash. You see... Actually going through with the promises they made was not as profitable. There were some baby farmers who basically acted as adoption agencies. They would Mm -hmm. take the money and the kids, use the money, you know, to care for the child like they were supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, of course, they would double dip by charging an adoption fee from the family that wanted to adopt the child. Yeah, that's usually how it goes. Yeah. Uh, But it was so much more profitable if you just kept the 10 pounds and ditched the Mm -hmm. kid. Mothers had no way of looking for their child. Uh, even if they wanted to, because the shame was too much. But there's mm-hmm. no governmental oversight. There's no paperwork. There's nothing. Once you hand the kid over, the kid basically just disappears. And the mothers would take the baby farmer's word at face value. Because when you do this and you are told this, you're not going to think about this person's just going to kill my child as soon as I'm out of sight. But unfortunately, in many cases, that's exactly what wound up happening. The most infamous of these baby farmers was a woman named Amelia Dyer, mm-hmm. who killed at least 40 children and may have killed as many as 400, which is a figure extrapolated from the number of children she was seen taking in over the time that she was under investigation. It's important to note that no matter how many kids she killed, she used the same methods as the other baby farmer murderers, just on a larger scale. And the reason they could get away with this for so long was because infant mortality rates, thanks to the lack of medical understanding, carelessness, disease, and violence, were an everyday fact of Victorian life. So these murders could often just pass below the radar if they looked accidental enough. So if the deaths needed to look excusably accidental, uh, the Mm -hmm. common method was to give the child an overdose of whiskey or a... Uh, a syrup called Mother's Friend, which was laced with opiates, you know, to get the kiddo to sleep. And you right. give them enough of it and they will just die. If the farmer was pressed for time or reasonably sure that they could get away with it, as was the case of Amelia Dyer, uh, the method would simply be strangulation and disposal of the body in a nearby river. So nobody was keeping an eye on these businesses. No. Nobody, nobody was noticing was, that this was, woman had taken in 400 children and not adopted. And any not of really them adopted out. any of them out. Yeah, no. Nope. Okay. It wasn't it was something where the the farmers were smart enough to change locations often. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you might see them take in 10 kids over the course of a couple of weeks, but then they move away and you don't think twice about it. And you certainly don't think that they, you know, buried the kids in the backyard. Um, and the most common 
uh, method was simple starvation. Babies need to eat, and they wither very quickly without milk and basic care. So that was what a lot of baby farmers did. Again, Amelia Dyer was not uh, the exception. She was just someone who did this on a much larger scale. Mm -hmm. Um, Many, many executions, some of the last executions in Britain, uh, carried out in the late 1800s were the executions of baby farmers who had, you know, murdered the children in their care. Also, child neglect laws had no way to catch up with any of this. So there uh, were laws in place at this time? Not really. Not really. Because remember, they had property laws. And that right. was about the extent of it. If you snuck into somebody's house and kidnapped their child, there was a law that could they could nail you on. But if a woman gives you her kid and Mm -hmm. gives you 10 pounds to take care of that kid and the child just happens to die under your care that's just a a horrible tragic accident so but 400 times yeah okay but there are police at this time there are police would that be investigated as a murder so the child went missing like that who's going to report the child missing that's the that's where the hole comes in because Mm -hmm. again the mother can't look for them and the, uh, the, the neighbors aren't going to keep watch. And the baby farmers certainly aren't going to mention that they've got, you know, a load of dead children. The way that many of these women were finally caught, and I do keep using the word women because they were almost universally women. They could oh, pose man. as nurses. They could pose as nur- midwives. They could mm-hmm. gain people's trust easier. Most of them were simply caught because they got overconfident in their disposal methods. Amelia Dyer's last few victims, for example, were wrapped in packages that she had received and tossed into a river. And since the address inside the package in which they found the child uh, had not fully degraded, they were able to basically track her down and arrest her right then and there. That is... Um, yeah, it's horrifying. The, all of them are her. I'm, I'm deliberately not going into the details of this because mm-hmm. that treads a little close to the, the, the sort of the true crime stuff that we don't really like. And I certainly don't want to be a, a ghoulish observer of this. I'm preferring to view this more as a societal disaster. There are so many ways. There are so many times along the way in which these could have been completely avoided. And they finally mm-hmm. were. In, uh, in Britain, the Infant Life Protection Act of 1897 was finally passed, which allowed governmental oversight of nurses who had more than one child under the age of five in their care for longer than two days. Mm-hmm. So basically, if you were a nurse, in, and this included the so-called wet nurses, mm-hmm. which were not you know medical nurses, but were women who were breastfeeding and able to breastfeed other kids as well, I think that counts as a caring. Or it absolutely job. counts as yeah. a caring. Yeah, absolutely. They would need to register any child in their care and they would be inspected by mm-hmm. uh, officials. And what finally drove the last nail into the coffin of the practice of baby farming was the passage of the Children and Young Persons Act of 1908. And what that act did is it made foster parents register with the government and made mm-hmm. non-registered fostering illegal. So even though black market baby sales would continue, the pervasiveness of baby farms was cut down and actual safe adoptions were had now become an alternative. Okay, so safe regulated yeah. like social worker adoptions. Pretty much, yeah. Okay. They were they were run by the by the governmental state 
you know, the uh, a child would be either abandoned or turned in. Mm-hmm. And they would, I mean, this is where those those big nasty orphanages of the late 1800s and early 1900s come from. But, you know, the, it was still better than being strangled to death by a sociopath. Sure. And, yeah, I mean, if you're going to choose between the best of horrifying options, mm-hmm. at least this one, you might get to grow up. Um, and with the subsequent development of reliable contraception and medical abortion, this brief moment in history, uh, which lasted about 50 years from about 1860 to about 1910, uh, remains a brutal reminder to the inequality of law when it comes to gender and childbirth and uh, the inherent need for people to be able to determine what's best for themselves and their families. So it's one of those, you know, things where when you look back on the historical documents of the time, all of this was actually seen as horrible. Of course, because it is. Because, because we're biologically hardwired, yeah. most of us, to I would protect say, kids. Yeah. even those of us who don't particularly care for kids. Yeah. What strikes me is looking through, looking through and rereading the, uh, the witness testimonies and mm-hmm. the, the writings of the time. Everyone is just wringing their hands and what an awful situation this is. Oh, baby farmers are terrible, terrible, terrible. But nobody did anything. You just said they they created yeah. those protection acts. The practices started in 1860. For almost 50 years, you'd get these accounts of hand-wringing and, oh, this is awful, and nobody did anything. So there were multiple... I guess, convictions, multiple executions oh, before yes. this protection came along. Yes. So people knew it was a problem. Yes. Amelia Dyer was executed in 1896. The Infant mm-hmm. Life Protection Act didn't pass till 1897. And the Children and Young Persons Act of 1908 didn't pass until then. Okay, so over the 40-year period from 1870 to 1909, six baby farmers were hanged in England and one each in Scotland and Wales. And these were people who had killed many, many children. They were not mm-hmm. just like one or two. Um, like we said, the Amelia Dyer case, like she was officially hanged for uh, the murder of one child. They could conclusively prove she'd killed at least 40 others. And again, by that extrapolation, um, maybe as many as 400 so none of these people who were executed for this under these under these uh, property disposal slash murder trials, uh, none of them just killed like one or two kids. Mm-hmm. Between these eight people, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of children. And the fact that it still took them that long to pass any kind of regular law over this is mm-hmm. kind of astonishing it's it, it feels very weird to me it's kind of like the second you figured out that this was happening you might want to do something about it but there were there were a lot of counter arguments um for what what's the counter argument to this the counter argument was morality you ready for this because so, this is the part that i really can't quite sucks. get there sorry yep so the counter argument is a very very simple one uh-huh. All they had to do was not get pregnant. Keeping in mind that a woman refusing to have sex with a man would more than likely be beaten to death. Keeping in mind that a woman who had... who had but How does that relate to the children? 
Oh, it are, doesn't. Are the murders morally excusable because the no, mothers? No, you see, the mor- the murders are not morally excusable. The practice okay. of baby farming is morally excusable. So we don't need to we don't need to pass any laws to take care of that because mm-hmm. it's all the women's fault. You see. It's the same logic as the Contagious Diseases Act. If women mm-hmm. would stop spreading sexually transmitted infections, then we wouldn't need to throw them up against the wall and check their genitals. Now, the counterargument to that is, of course, well, uh, it takes a guy to catch it from her, does it not? But no, all the women's fault. And, uh, you know, this is this is how this has been framed this entire time. Remember that... If you are a fallen woman, it is your fault. You you should have known better. You should have been more careful. You should have not worn that particular garment when walking down that particular street. And these are all like, I, I feel like I'm talking like a like a 1980s, uh, you know, slimy lawyer in a court movie right now. But yeah, these I are, don't like it. These are all translated for convenience quotes from these hearings. Mm-hmm. Of course. When we're talking in the in the court records, the mm-hmm. um, the only people testifying are men, of course, because the uh, the women could not testify because women are not uh, able to do so. So all of these quotations come from guys that were testifying. So uh, baby farming was not limited to Victorian England, of course. Australia, New Zealand, and the United States all had cases ranging from Depression-era fostering, in giant air quotes, to Mm -hmm. outright babies-for-sale schemes. Um, Famously, the Chicago sign of uh, it's cheaper to buy a baby for $100 than to make one yourself. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) What was that? A survey by the Chicago Juvenile Protective Association uh, reported that children were sold for up to $100 in the 1910s mm-hmm. in the United States, with a percentage down and the balance in installments. No questions were asked, and children frequently were sent out of state. One brass Chicago farmer even used the slogan, quote, it's cheaper and easier to buy a baby for $100 than to have one of your own, end quote. And these were farm labor kids. These were babies. These were kids who you either couldn't or didn't want to care for mm-hmm. and it, it, there was a for-profit adoption brokers which was the the baby farming of the united states now the united states did have just want to give a shout out to for-profit adoption broker that is not <laughs> a thing that should be a thing <laughs> thanks yep yep uh, that's not a sentence we needed to hear no. um so Uh, There was child welfare regulation, including minimum standards for the United States very quickly after this time period. Yeah, I know that was the original intention of the Humane Society. Yeah, kids, not not puppies. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Then they moved on to animals. Well, they got the legislation passed that they needed passed for the kids to be okay. Uh, you needed to get state licensing, uh, certification of the adoption agencies, mm-hmm. and uh, foster homes had to be subject to inspection after all this. But yeah, uh, it's uh, it's pretty gross. It was not limited to Victorian England, but in Victorian England was definitely where it was the worst. Yeah, it seems like they took the idea and really ran with it. Yeah. and Really... Uh built a model that could be scalable yeah and very profitable if you think about it i mean 
What did they do with all that money? Well, that's an interesting thing. Uh, some of the women uh, bought themselves very nice dresses and houses. Some of the women okay. took lavish holidays out overseas. Uh, some of them were not really sure because there are a couple of these baby farmers that were caught mm -hmm. uh, and executed and were reportedly penniless at the time of their death, but had used the money from the babies to finance a lavish lifestyle. So, of okay. course, you know, if you're going to host champagne parties every night, you're going to need to grab a couple babies. Mm. It's just it's the sheer transactionary nature of it that makes my have skin crawl. I hosted a lot of champagne parties. Uh, <laughs> In your without, time, yes. Without yes. farming babies. I, I know it's possible. Well, you know, different strokes, Ella. No, but in all seriousness, I think it does come from a, from a place of privilege that Absolutely. you and I are so incredibly horrified um, to read about this. And one reason why I think yeah. we try to stay away from true crime yep. is because it's hard for us to get our heads around why someone would hurt someone else. Of course, why someone would hurt someone else is... Yeah, but why one question? But why someone would hurt, a, someone child, would hurt yeah. a, a baby or yeah. a young child? I just yeah. can't can't get my head around that. If you could create a stable economy mm -hmm. on doing this, and you had absolutely no moral problems with doing it, then you get rich. I mean, that's how paying for goods and services works, and that's what's horrifying about all of this. Sure. Is that you know, at some point, these stop being children. These start being simply dollar signs. And that's, you know, that's not something anybody would like to see happen. But knowing that they're doing it by preying on women who pretty much had no other option is mm -hmm. even worse. Um, Just the most vulnerable absolutely. members of the society. Yep. 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 Horrifying. Yeah. It's absolutely horrifying. It's absolutely terrifying that it even was like seen as even relatively respectable i mean the term baby farmer was used as a pejorative but it is very accurate for what a lot of these people did and again was there a respectable term um like what did amelia dyer call herself oh god i have no idea i feel like that would be very insightful to know <laughs> I mean, in a, in a terrible way, probably they would present themselves almost as like adoption or fostering agents. But I don't I honestly don't know. They they must have just been like, hi, I'm Amelia or something, you know, like I don't there, there doesn't seem to be a term. If you were calling someone a baby farmer, you were <laughs> implying that they were improperly treating the children. However, uh, the illegitimacy and social stigma from having a child out of wedlock was seen as far worse so was mm. it? yeah was that far yeah worse? it was it okay. was it actually was the first time amelia dyer got arrested this is the, i was gonna skip this because it is a little too true crimey but it, it fits mm -hmm. into this first time she was arrested she served six months of hard labor this was after she had starved to death numerous kids because that was the only punishment on the books for something like that. Neglect of a child, you got six months hard labor. Hmm. The scaling didn't matter. It just... Anyway, it's gross. The Adoption of Children Regulation Act of 1939 also really helped uh, because that was really what moved the entire process of adoption out of the 
I guess you'd call it the private sector. Uh, the for-profit <laughs> yeah, The for-profit sector. sector. There we go. And into and into the, the hands of agencies that would keep track of things and... Mm-hmm. Where again, things Make can sure and do kids, go yeah. horribly wrong, but absolutely, just having oversight is seems just having like a somebody kind of stick their head in the door and be like, "Are the kids still alive? Good, yeah. excellent, yeah." Just the basics. Yeah, yeah, just the basics. Just the basics. I mean, it was the Victorian. It was the Victorian times. They didn't care if the kids were happy. They just cared if they were breathing. So you know, uh, to kind of tie a bow on this entire horrible subject. The entire practice arose out of a desperate need by vulnerable people uh, being exploited by people who had the ability to do so. And unfortunately, it's not, you know, it's not an uncommon story throughout history and throughout modernity. This is what happens when you can prey on the unfortunate. So if you had a society like this where a woman who was married had Uh, no rights under the control of her husband, a woman who was unmarried, had no rights under the control of her father. You didn't have uh, a society where where fairness was really important. You had a society where you needed to have uh, people who were under your control be kept under there very firmly. And that led to huge systematic reforms uh, throughout the 1900s and I just wish we could have gotten there without, you know, killing a bunch of babies. So, there we have it, folks. And, uh, again, if, if uh, you stuck through it all the way, that's the story of the uh, practice of baby farming. Really hate it. Yeah, there's nothing good about it. Even the fact that, like, people are like, well, it caused the first child welfare laws to be passed. Yeah, but you could have done that without all the stuff that came before it just a thought just a theory you know i think this is the worst thing we've ever talked about for me it's up there with jonestown in terms of people having control of their own selves taken away from them and murdered but yeah but the people who well no i think this is worse i'm gonna come down on the side of fair enough yeah baby farming is really gross it's it's it may be in like it's not the most devastating human-caused disaster, but I don't think it's got much of uh, much competition for the cruelest. Thanks, I hate it. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot to hate. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com, or if you'd like to shame us publicly. You know you do. Why not use our Instagram, at relative.disasters? Oh, wait, can I interrupt? Please. Um, I got a, our dad listens to this podcast, and he listened to our train episode from last week. Okay. And he wanted to know where he goes to shame us publicly. So I told him to send a postcard to Instagram's corporate headquarters, and they yes. put it on the internet for him. Uh, so that is also an option if yes, you are absolutely. If you're you old can... school and you love a written the written yep. word. Mm-hmm. That is also an option. Definitely send a postcard directly to Instagram care of well, send it to relative disasters care of Instagram. Oh, that'll, I just told him Instagram corporate headquarters. If he calls um, the switchboard, the nice operating lady might be able to put him through. You know, park three one two five. Well, I think us. it's more cathartic. 
<laughs> to write it out. Uh, thank you for sitting through this awful episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've learned from the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, interesting, and much less awful event from history. No matter what yep. it is, it's got to be less awful, right? It is, yeah. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella? Yeah, this is much less awful. I need Good. a palate cleanser. Yes, please. Uh, we are going to talk about the 1971 hijacking of Northwest Orient Flight 305, the only unsolved hijacking in American commercial airline history. We're talking That's about right, D.B. Folks. Cooper? It's time for D.B. Cooper. I love this. I love this so much. D.B. Cooper, by the way, is Sasquatch. We figured it out. We have solved this. So just if you want to skip the next episode. It's all in there. It's, it's all in there. there. Yeah, absolutely. All right. That sounds amazing. And I cannot wait to talk about it with you.